Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff, and I am joined today by Jakub Yanda, who is the executive director and head of the Kremlin Watch program at the European Values Think Tank in Prague. Uh, he is an expert on disinformation, influence operations, and ways of responding to them. Um, it's really interesting and, uh, I hope, timely conversation that you will enjoy. Uh, let's get started. I'm joined today on Russian Roulette by Jakub Yanda from the Kremlin Watch program uh, at the European Values Think Tank in Prague. Uh, Jakub, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. Disinformation and influence operations. This is a topic that's on everybody's mind in Washington and presumably in Prague as well. How serious of a threat is this? We have plenty of evidence that democratic politics are dysfunctional in a lot of countries right now, but among all the coalition of factors that contribute to that dysfunction, how important is is hostile disinformation and, and influence operations? I would say that Western democracies have many domestic internal problems, which are natural and which we, with which we have to deal ourselves, let's say. Uh, but they are hostile actors, uh, mainly state institutions or governments, uh, mainly Russia and more and more of China, which actually are trying to use it or actually, I would say, do hostile activities against us, uh, meaning European or American democracy as well. And more practically, um, I believe, uh, well, in, in the eyes, in the democracy, mindset of Russian and Chinese state and their practicalities, how they do it, it's basically a military tool of uh, which they use quite often for foreign policy objectives. Well, uh, it's a it's a political tool. I'm not sure mm-hmm. it's a military tool. Oh, you're right, maybe. Uh, quite, so quite often it's the military knowledge which allows it on technical basis, let's say, at least in the Russian case, and I would say partly more, in, more and more in the Chinese case. Uh, but you're right, they, they go for politi- political objectives. Well, I mean, when they want to achieve something specifically in one region, one country, in Europe or the US, mm-hmm. it's a political political reasons why they do it, actually. Now, let's step back a second. Mm-hmm. Why? So I think we can understand what is going on and potentially what the impact mm-hmm. is. Now, what are Russia, China, and potentially other authoritarian powers doing that's different? What makes the influence operations of the disinformation campaigns that they carry out different from, let's say, what the United States does, what Western European countries do? I mean, is there – sometimes I ask the question, you know, we talk a lot about Russian malign influence. Well, what would non-malign Russian influence look like? Is all Russian influence malign? Mm-hmm. Not at all. Uh, and it's a fair question, which I keep getting, I mean, for example, anywhere I, I do this in Prague or anywhere in Central Europe. Uh, and uh, so let me give you an example uh, how we try to think about it in, in Prague. I was part of the government team, of Czech government's team in 2016 and 17, which looked into this. And we tried to assess basically which things are hostile, which are not. So what, what should the, go- the government respond to? And uh, 
in our case, um, well, it's it's relatively straightforward. So we have a national security strategy, as most of European countries or any country would have. And in that in this strategy, the government or the state in in, in our case actually names our interests of mm-hmm. the government. Well, so practically, I mean, those are vital interests, the most important ones. So um, uh, let's say uh, territorial integrity, political independence, sovereignty, the usual things. But then they are strategic interests of the country. In our case, is the EU and NATO membership. Uh, and uh, also stable neighborhood. With for Czech Republic basically means stable Ukraine, for example. So when if somebody is trying to attack something or undermine some of those interests, that's something what the government mm-hmm. or I personally would consider to be hostile. Okay. So if I put it very simply, if the Russians only te- teach language, the Russian language, Russian culture in my country, no problem at all. But once they spread this information, for example, about Ukraine, which they do a lot, mm-hmm. uh, that's quite hostile for our foreign policy interests of the country, for example. So I mean, uh, so the question for example, is are the Americans doing it or are Germans doing it in Prague or in Czech Republic? And most often I would say no. We And um, when I am criticized for, for example, looking too much into Russia-China, uh, I would answer, well, once the Americans, Germans, I mean Danes, Brits would start uh, pushing, for example, political groups in my country or extremist groups, uh, pushing us out of EU or NATO, that's where I would see it as hostile. But it is not happening at all. That's mainly the Russians and the Chinese doing it in our case. Mm-hmm. Now, do we have a sense of what their objectives are? I think when it comes to Russia, we can probably guess people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis probably have some sense of of what Russia seeks to gain by spreading particular narratives in, in places like the Czech Republic. But what about China? For China, I think the strategic objective for Europe, uh, or in the European case, is the following. For China understands quite well that the next mega trend, next 10, 15, 20, maybe more years, will be about the US-China confrontation. That's basically what everybody understands even here in DC. Uh, mm-hmm. So seeing this through the Chinese eyes, uh, one of their military strategy, uh, strategies, or you might say tactics, is actually try to isolate the main opponent, which are the United States. So quite simply, the Chinese objective in Europe would be, I would say, to infiltrate as much as possible of European governments, European states, Uh, to make sure that um, some of them are not on the American side when the confrontation with the US between US-China is happening. And that's the reason why you have 17 plus Mm 1, basically a regional format of Chinese influence for for Central Eastern Europe and Western Balkans, uh, and quite many activities which China is doing there. So more or less, it's about, I would say, decoupling between US Mm -hmm. and uh, a big portion of Europe. Uh, I mean, there are particular objectives like like trying to create a split in Five Eyes Alliance. That's why there are so much Chinese activities on Huawei in, in the mm-hmm. United Kingdom, for example. But specifically for Central Eastern European countries, if you look to the region, well, for this global game, we as, as smaller member states in, in Central Eastern Europe, we are not politically, economically, or militarily relevant for this confrontation, really. We are small countries. But we all have our UN seats. We all have mm-hmm. our, let's say, EU, EU or NATO seats. So if you are able of infiltrating and getting some of those member states, as China is quite effective in this, uh, you can achieve quite a lot with very little resources, I would say, in those countries. Mm -hmm. Now, can we measure the effectiveness of these information campaigns? How do we know 
whether uh, attempts to spread disinformation in the Czech Republic or in Germany or in the United States are, are having an impact? Mm -hmm. I think there are two ways how to look into it. One is very technical or tactically, I would say. So looking at one particular operation or activity. So we could measure it on social media. How far do they get? But that's really about outreach or number of people they reach. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have seen in the US elections, for example, and many other European cases. So kind of well. looking at the number of times a, a tweet gets forwarded. Looking at how many t t people they reached out to, which doesn't mean that how, which doesn't uh, mean that all of them were persuaded by that, obviously. Uh, but then there is the second thing, and I mean uh, the more, let's say, bigger picture approach. And that's why, I mean, if you read the KGB manuals or KGB historical books over 70s and 80s, what they were basically saying is, we don't really care over how we do it, how many people do we reach, but we care about the outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in, in some cases, you cannot really say what's the percentage of people which basically were persuaded by the Russians on Brexit. I don't know that. Maybe mm -hmm. there are specific There's, there's specific research and details of this. But for example, on some policy questions, I think it's relatively uh, simple to do so. For, so in the, in the Czech case, uh, one of the Russian objectives is to, let's say, isolate Ukraine mm -hmm. for whatever, for, for obvious reasons, because they, they want Ukraine to be fa a failed state, a buffering zone for, for Russia. So uh, that's the reason why you see quite a lot of Russian, and Russian activity and their proxies in the Czech Republic, creating the picture that Ukraine is a failed state, which is run by a fascist or a neo-Nazi government, which might seem absurd, but already around 30% of Czech population believes this. We have mm -hmm. actually a poll for this specifically. And I mean, you could say, well, people just don't like Ukraine. That might be true. But if you look through again, other polls well, in the Czech Republic... Most people don't pay close attention. And so yeah. if somebody mm -hmm. is... Uh, spinning a consistent narrative that mm -hmm. is it gets present in the background, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. pick it up because yep. they're not spending the time to, to really dig in and, and understand other ways of thinking about the problem. Mm -hmm. Much better, yeah, exactly. So for that reason, if you if you think about uh, approximately one third of Czech population believing Ukraine is a fascist and failing mm -hmm. state, then the policy impact of this is that the Czech government or foreign minister as a politician can hardly go out publicly and say, well, look, we need to support Ukraine because it's under right. attack. Uh, so it actually has some policy implications in this particular case, for example. Uh, we might look into other cases which are hard to measure, but for example, uh, the number of people who are willing to go in Article 5 situation to defend the Baltics, for example. And I mean, there are different reasons why they do it. But uh, the problem is that many European governments don't want to, to uh, measure this, don't want to do the regular polling, because it would show what kind of a big problem we have in many, even Western European countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but uh, specifically for this, I mean, we could just look at the specific policy uh, policy issues, which, for example, Russia clearly wants in Central Europe on Ukraine, for example. That's quite easy to see, I would say. Okay. You know, you mentioned um, old Soviet intelligence manuals about information operations. I think that's a really important topic that maybe doesn't get enough attention in some of the debates around misinformation and disinformation in, in this country, which is there are historical precedents to this. As much as we focus on the technology, as much as we talk about social media and what should we do with Facebook and Twitter and other platforms, part of the problem, in some ways the crux of the problem, isn't really about the technology for dissemination. It's about the messages themselves. Um, and, you know, this, I think you're right, the, the, the KGB worked out in, in pretty effective detail how to carry out these campaigns in order to have the maximum political influence. So when you look at some of these information campaigns today, you know, where do you see 
parallels to things that the, the Soviet government was doing? And are there lessons in terms of how the West responded to Soviet disinformation that would be relevant today, kind of leaving aside the whole Twitter and Facebook piece of it? Mm-hmm. I think we actually have a national piece in this. So there, is a guy, there was a guy named Ladislav Bitman who was actually a Czechoslovak secret police uh, of intelligence officer in the 50s and 60s. He was working in Prague for the communist era po- uh, secret police, so basically for the KGB. It was a right. proxy of the KGB. For the Czechoslovak. For the Czechoslovak, yeah. uh, sorry, for the Czechoslovak intelligence service during the time. He, he, he defected in the 60s and he then uh, lived here in, in, in Washington and then in Boston. He wrote a lot of books uh, about specifically uh, KGB disinformation because he was a deputy. What was his name again? Ladislav Bitman, who was named. Okay. Uh, 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 or Larry in English as well. So <laughs> he, he used an American name after that. But uh, what he did is that he, he was a deputy director of a specific unit within the uh, Czechoslovak mm-hmm. intelligence service on this. But more practically, I mean, if you look through the details of KGB or proxy, proxy like Stasis or, and, and other ones, mm-hmm. uh, what the lessons learned from that, I think, is that they were specifically targeting, for example, not only within the public, so specific disinformation p- campaigns on issues like racial issues, for mm-hmm. example, uh, but also they went to the political landscape and they try to cherry pick which political parties they could really feed with specific issues. So the green movement or, or pacifist movement, anti-Vietnam, for example, they've been running quite a lot of it in, in Western Europe in the past. Uh, and quite often we could see now that even people who were, I would say, targeted by KGB or KGB proxies in 70s and 80s, for example, the British Labour Party, or I mean individuals who are still active or mm-hmm. were quite recently still active, uh, they more or less keep going on in the same direction as well. I mean, the lesson learned how to counter that. I think there have been two major approaches by the West, mainly by the US during the time. One, uh, well, the sunlight strategy, so basically make it as transparent as possible, catch them, catch them doing it and pointing pointing out. Catch the domestic enablers. Yes, and also catch the KGB doing it, actually, which which obviously we are trying, I mean, our institutions are trying to do today, but the difference is in the second tactics. Uh, because what, uh, if you if you read through the Metro Heinz archives, for example, of the KGB, which were brought up in the, in the 90s and, and 2000s, uh, you read a lot about uh, operations KGB planned to do, but didn't do, decided not to do for political reasons, mm-hmm. because they were afraid of being caught and that there would be a backlash against the Soviet government. Uh, which currently, obviously, we, we can't see inside of the FSB, GRU, and SVR today. Uh, but uh, clearly, what I think is the difference is that there isn't much of punishment of once the once basically the Russian intelligence is being caught doing it. It is coming from the US, but if you look through the Europe, uh, you don't see much of punishment after specific Russian operations are being caught. Punishment uh, of... of the Russian government mm. specifically. So it might be uh, dip- diplomatic sanctions. It might be personal financial sanctions. So basically, if you look through the incidents which were just revealed last two years, uh, there were very symbolic actions taken. I mean, the Skripal case, the Russian chemical attack in the UK, uh, if you look through the continental Europe, mm-hmm. only the only response which really happened was rhetorical and zero to four Russian operatives being sent home or expelled, uh, which is honestly just a symbolic response for right. you. Well, and that's different yeah. too, because that's mm-hmm. not so much an information operation, that's actually... You know, yes, it was an assassination attempt, somebody. really. And I mean, for example, what we have seen uh, is the are when when the Brits actually expelled like ninety or one hundred uh, Soviet officers in the seventies and eighties. Currently, uh, the top we, we get in most of European countries is zero to five individuals being expelled. I mean, just just one number, but it shows you how seriously we take the response to it.
Now, we've been talking about disinformation, but um, at your organization, at European Values, you focus on other aspects of influence as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of the other tools and techniques that countries like Russia use to influence political outcomes in, in other countries and sort of where those campaigns are being undertaken and you know how effective they are? I think the important part outside of disinformation is actually the cultivation of political ties to individual political groups. and um, Political groups or individual political or, figures? I mean, yeah, sometimes it's, it's groups uh, where, they, where they try to reach out, for example, to a political party which starts with individuals and then they cultivate a relationship to a group. More more practically, so there is, a, I think there isn't much of research done for obvious reasons because it's not so easy to do, uh, lo- to look into how our long-term pro- um, relationships between various Russian proxies and uh, the political assets or proxies which Russia actually gets in Europe. So, I mean, for example, um, how has Russians got to Marine Le Pen? How they got to the current Czech president, Milo Zeman, for example, and ma- many other figures? Uh, because those things don't come just r- right out of the blue. It doesn't happen just overnight. And uh, the things which we ca- quite often see at least in Central European context, is that when they are, um, let's say, politicians who are done with their political careers or they are over their prime, uh, what happens that when they feel that they are being left alone or nobody really is interested in them, uh, Russian proxies are actually the first ones to be at their doorstep quite often. When you say Russian proxies, you mean... For example, Vladimir Yakunin, former head of Russian railways, very close oligarch to Putin. Now he's not as close to Putin anymore to, to our understanding. But, uh, for example, the current Czech president is essentially working for Russia or working for Russian foreign policy interests over the last five, six years. But his uh, known relationship with uh, Russian proxies like Mr. Yakuyin actually started in approximately 2003. Uh, after he finished his term as a prime minister, he, he felt uh, alone and, uh, let's say, frustrated, nobody really trusted him, he had no po- no popularity uh, but one of the few pe- first people who met him was, was Mr. Yakunin who started to bring him over to to the Greek island of Rhodos for a, for an annual conference where those, let's say, former politicians from Europe quite often are being invited so that they are Russian proxies like Mr. Yakunin who start cultivate their ties with them and when the time comes possibly to, let's say, try to help them reactivate them like Mr. Zeman in, in the Czech case, uh, uh, that actually happens, and we've seen it in, for, with other politicians in in, uh, in Europe. For example, Francois Fillon, former French pri- prime minister, one of the first phone calls he got after he was fired as a French prime minister was from Putin. Uh, it doesn't mean that this specific call doesn't mean anything, but if you look how it happened after that, once those let's say high-level figures lose their respect by by the mainstream uh, audiences or mainstream political establishment, and there is somebody reaching out to them. Quite often we see that it, it starts working, and it's, it's first the, the, pol- the personal relationship, and then then later on comes the money or individual help for individual politicians. Right, and so I mean, again, I guess there's a, an interesting question here, which is, you know, how much of this is sort of legitimate diplomatic engagement, and how much of it is. Not. I mean, I think when we start talking about financial ties and quid pro quo, that's obviously across a line. But, you know, on the other hand, I think there's 
it's perfectly rational for the Russian leadership to want to reach out to some of these people and to recognize that they may be able to cultivate a relationship that can be useful in the future. I think the question becomes, how do they cultivate that relationship? Are they doing things that violate sovereignty, that um, you know, involve money laundering, that violate tax laws, that do various kinds of things that are illegal for one reason or another? Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, once they cross the legal line, it's relatively easy. You have law enforcement agencies which more or less across Europe are fine on this or actually start to do something. But before there is a legal line, there is a line of activities which uh, I would argue are, are illegitimate or uh, could be actually seen as hostile uh, in, in, in regards to them uh, while still being formally legal. So it is legal to put somebody on a private company's board or a state company board, for example, for, mm-hmm. for be it whatever state, Russian or, or company be uh, in Germany, Austria, Czech Republic, other places across Europe. But that, I mean, the Chinese do it very well as well. They, they, mm-hmm. they, seek, they look for former public figures who actually they hire to get, to get more influence there. So yeah, well, it, but not mm-hmm. only Chinese state companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see this yeah. with private companies in the West too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are plenty of former American politicians and diplomats who are serving on the boards of companies in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of whether they know anything about tech or not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's legitimate to do so. Uh, I think the problem here is that because it's really boiling up the frog, at least in the European cases I see. So uh, it is at the first glance, at the first moment, it doesn't seem to be hostile. I mean, when Gerhard Schroeder got the, the Russian state company job, I mean, I think it it made some splash for a couple of weeks in German press, but after that, everybody you mean was on like, the being on the board of the the Nord Stream Consortium. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so that's something what uh, many people in Germany would consider to be okay, and I mean they they have right to 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 believe it and right to defend it. Uh, but then, if you look from the long term perspective, you see very clearly how the Russians actually did it, and it's it's, it's a very deliberate, intentional strategy how to get those individuals. So it is not easy to fight it. Actually, I mean the only real response. I see here uh, isn't really coming from the government because you cannot prosecute those things if they are not illegal and right. they, they, you cannot make this illegal. Right. That, that wouldn't make real sense in democratic society. So I think what is the response and in some countries I see it working out is when you have civil society and part of the media which actually set up a political norm, a political mm-hmm. line of what is acceptable, what is not. So the question comes for a next uh, former minister, former prime minister uh, in his or her head will I lose political and social credibility mm-hmm. if I accept this job? Mm-hmm. And me, as a think tanker working in this field, I would like them to think, yes, I will lose a lot politically and socially and personally if I do this. So they would uh, not do similar activities. They would not choose to accept those jobs. Yeah. And you have to do it only by by societal public pressure. That's mm-hmm. how, we, how how our things are to do it. And that's actually the big difference. Especially if these people have political ambitions. Yes. Right? I mean, if this becomes something that's going to be a political liability rather than a political asset for them in the future, then I think it changes the way that they think about whether it makes sense or not. That's true. But many of those who are essentially hired by Russia or China on their proxies are, let's say, people who probably don't have much of political future. They are over their political prime, so they are still useful for five to ten years as basic lobbyists. Uh, so it's hard. They, they don't really think about their political future that much, many of them. Uh, but this is a big difference between countries which I would say are defending themselves, like the Baltic states, for example, uh, and the ones which are not really going for this. In i would say most of Germany, it, uh, Italy, Austria, France, for example. And I would say many of them in, in the UK as well, for sure. Uh, so, th- so this political line isn't there, or I mean, 
this uh, level of acceptability is very low for, for, for uh, in many of those, those countries because you don't have actors who are essentially and actively pushing forward that those things, when you accept a Russian or basically Russian company, a Russian state company job, which will possibly have policy or strategic implications like energy sector and other fields. Uh, so it's not just about you getting money from some minefield somewhere or from, from anything else. So that's, that's something uh, what I think is the difference between those countries which are actually defending themselves and which are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think one of the differences is basically it's very fundamental and it comes down to how do these countries regard Russia? Uh, do they see Russia as an existential threat to their sovereignty and independence, which I think is the case for the Baltic states and some of the other um, Central and Eastern European states? Or do they see Russia as another big country that you have to deal with um, through normal diplomatic means, which I think is the way that France and Germany and uh, maybe put the UK in a slightly different category, but a lot of the larger and Western European countries look at the problem. I agree. Uh, And what we have seen since Crimea, since 2014, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that there has been let's say, a development in most of European countries on on this, on how they see Russia. Uh, Sometimes it's really feeling, well, we knew it all the time, we are just defending ourselves, like the Baltics, Poland. Uh, Sometimes it's the category of which we call the awoken countries, countries which more or less understood this is a big threat, we need to do something, like UK, Sweden, other countries. Uh, And there are countries which essentially did a lot of talk and very little action, like Germany, France, and and a couple of others in the south of Europe. Uh, And there there is basically, uh, my question usually is, what else would have to happen so they would start changing their mind? Because, I mean, Ukraine, Syria, dozens of let's say, activities inside of European countries, uh, usually the response to this question would be once they get hit themselves, they start to understand it. Like Spain, for example. Mm-hmm. Spain, during the Catalonia crisis, they see a lot of Russian activity there. So the, the, the center-right government in Spain during the time actually start to do a lot of things on Russia for yeah, like or, half a year. Or the UK, whose or the UK changed yeah. very fundamentally after the Skripal case. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you're Czech. Uh, you mentioned the, the current Czech president who um, has not followed this particular approach to dealing with Russia, <laughs> let's say. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your own organization's relationship with the Czech government and mm-hmm. whether you've ha- uh, been able to have access or change mm-hmm. minds or just sort of how effective you think your work is back home? Mm-hmm. What we try, started to do after 2014 was that first, I mean, we spent a year or two trying to understand what the hell is happening with the Russian influence activities in Europe because it wasn't mm-hmm. obvious, I have to say. So many of us who di- haven't been dealing with this for 20 years, we, for us it was new, honestly. Uh, but we started to see in 2015-16 quite a lot of Russian disinformation, Russian proxies, political proxies, extremist groups supported by Russian proxies in, in specific Czech context. And uh, then the president who actually started to voice all the Russian strategic narratives, lying about that there are no Russians in Ukraine and the usual stuff. Um, so what we started to do is that uh, we have actually put together a community of like-minded first experts, some government insiders, some some journalists, um, 
dozens of internal roundtables to understand this and discuss how do we see it. And uh, then in 2016, we were one of the one of the groups which actually persuaded the Czech government to launch a national security audit, basically a review of internal security policies of the Czech Republic. And uh, in 2016, uh, the Czech Ministry of Interior, which is our version of the Home Office, uh, or the DHS, for example, uh, they basically decided to uh, have me as an external advisor on this specific process. So for two years, uh, there was a government-led process with some outsiders like myself who actually look into first how our foreign influence activities, mainly Russia-China, happening in Czech Republic and Central European context, and second, how is the ready, how is the government ready to face it? Because for last approximately 30 years, Czech government didn't have a real policy on countering this. There was a false, I would say, expectation. First, it's not touching us. It's touching just the Baltics or Poland, not us. Not Obviously not true. Second, there is freedom of speech, so we can do nothing about it. Obviously not true. We could do many things without in- interfering with freedom of speech. And the third, uh, I would say, big expectation was that we have the country intelligence community which will deal with it, which might be true in countries which where uh, the domestic agencies like the FBI, for example, do have law enforcement and executive powers, which in Central Europe, with the exception of Poland, most of countries actually don't because of our previous history. We so you mean they Soviet, can only conduct investigations? They can't? They can only get information. They cannot even formally investigate. So our country intelligence agency or agencies in general cannot really investigate uh, in the in law enforcement process. They cannot execute anything uh, in, in, in real life, let's say. So they can only gather information because they were taking these competencies away during the 90s because right. we had better because experience. Of the history because of, of the history having of having overly powerful exactly. security. So systems. for that reason, uh, our intelligence community is, let's say, very weak. They are very good analytically, but they cannot do much with that. Mm-hmm. So the government doesn't have an arm which could do those things. They, you have, we have law enforcement, but as we said, many of the influence activities are formally legal. So you cannot prosecute them with law enforcement. But still you would like to do something as a government. And that's that was the whole audit we were doing as, with the government. So the government started to launch a couple of policies addressing this gap of, 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 uh, of policies, let's say, of, of what we could do. Um, so more or less our, exp- our experience with the government as, as our thing saying, was really working quite closely with, uh, let's say, security policy professionals. And uh, currently, for example, we implement Czech development aid in Georgia on this particular issue on Russian influence mm-hmm. activity. So I would say we work relatively closely, but we are not a government organization. And we have an internal rule that only up to 10% of our annual budget can come from government sources to be financially independent on the government. Mm-hmm. Because in our region, governments change and you right. never know how, how bad it's going to be. Right. So when you have been consulting with members of the of the Czech government this is people in sort of the career civil service who are not being affected by the the changing political winds true yes 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 More, mainly mainly let's see intelligence security policy experts from ministries agencies that's that's mainly the people we work with on these issues because mm-hmm. they look into it on a daily basis and then there is the political class obviously which right. which is well, it's already different and has this issue been taken up by the political class? Has it become part of the domestic political debate in the Czech Republic? It has, but mainly because of the Russian proxies like the president. Because if you can imagine, I mean, you can imagine very well here in D.C., but uh, <laughs> if you have a, a head of the state, in our case, who is essentially using Russian lies on a daily basis and who is essentially supporting Russian foreign policy objectives, in our case, uh, it becomes a domestic political issue. It's not like page number 10 in the news. It's mm. really the front, the front news. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so the we, opposition is is hammering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, yeah, and in our in our case, fortunately, the president is uh, only a ceremonial figure. He doesn't mm-hmm. have policy competences. It's the government and the prime minister right. doing it. Um, so the, all of our governments in the last five years have been, I would say, very solid on these issues. One of the reasons is that we are actually in NATO, which doesn't mean that NATO influences us, but the big, it means that if you are a NATO country prime minister, you actually are more or less accountable to your other peers within NATO. So you have to discuss these issues with your peers, with your mm-hmm. neighbors as well, with your, all except of Austria in NATO as well. So that's all of that is basically synchronizing to some extent. And the security policy institutions are very much in sync on this as well. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but more or less those things actually keep holding up uh, compared to other countries in the region like Slovakia, Austria or Hungary, where Russian influence is relatively high, like in Hungary, for example, and their institutions actually have much tougher time than the Czech ones. Mm-hmm. So how is Europe and maybe the United States doing? Um, since you've been doing this since 2014, you've had a a chance to get a bit of a longitudinal perspective. Um, have we gotten better um, at identifying and, and pushing back these um, examples of, of malign influence, or are we still kind of figuring out how to fight that battle? I think the understanding of the threat or of the problem, actually, that's the, we have it, more or less. Uh, it's hard to deny the existence of this threat anywhere in Europe, more or less, with some exceptions of, of some southern European countries. But more or less, the the existence is here, or the, the, the admittance of this. Uh, but what, where we haven't got far is actually first responding to the threat, meaning, to the, for example, to the messaging of, of, of specific disinformation actors, or, um, let's say, to deterring and punishing the hostile which Russian government and its proxies actually do inside Europe. Um, so more or less any time there is, a, let's say, a hostile act by Russian government inside Europe, I mean, including, for example, in Ukraine, uh, mainly it's the U.S. Congress pushing the response, pushing the U.S. administration to respond more or less. With, I mean, obviously the agencies actually doing quite a lot of work and some some um, departments as well. While in Europe, you have the Brits on the, on basically storming the response more or less, at least in the recent years, and on the continent more on or less on their way out of the EU. Yes, and yeah. many many domestic problems as well. So I'm honestly not very sure how how sustainable their approach is. Actually, I very much like what they do, but I'm not sure, and I'm honestly very much scared of the next government. Or, I mean, we'll see who the prime minister will be, but if Labour comes to power, it might be a real mess, honestly. Not only on Russia there. Um, but uh, specifically on the, in continental Europe, uh, you have you have member states uh, which actually understand and respond to this threat very well, but almost all of them are small and poor member states. So they are in Central Eastern Europe, um, and they are new member states, came to the EU after 2004. So, and uh, most of those countries, if you look to the map, uh, they are essentially getting EU money from the EU budget. Now, they are not paying to the EU budget, as the old member states, like Germany, France, Italy, for example. So in that case, uh, us, meaning Central Eastern Europeans, we more or less understand the threat, somehow respond to it, some, uh, some of us, uh, but we can't really push for a European response because we are weak and poor and not well respected, not well respected for objective reasons, let's say, mm-hmm. by the big don't, Yeah, don't have as much pull within yes. the EU. we are not power players in this case. Yeah. And the only country which could have been doing it, it would be Poland, but it is not, honestly, because of po- its own political reasons, because right. its, its government is unfortunately quite toxic in EU debates, mm-hmm. and it's really much attacking the Germans that much that it doesn't have much of credibility with other, other right. European countries. Even though, ironically, it's relatively hostile to Russia. 
Yes, and they they understand Russian drought very well. And I believe if the current Polish government would really be, I would say, more strategic and constructive among Europe, it would get a lot of <laughs> respect from responding to Russia because everybody understands the Poles have their history mm-hmm. and their knowledge of Russia. But unfortunately, given what Warsaw is doing and many mainly against Germany, doesn't help much. Right. The whole history of Poland is things go badly when you alienate both Germany and Russia at the same <laughs> yes, time. Yes, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's another story. Um, all right. Well, we've been talking a lot about Russia. So let's maybe come back to China really quickly. I would say that on China, we have a quite interesting development where there's more and more of Chinese influence activities in Europe, which are seen quite negatively by many European countries. Like, for example, uh, German Federation of Industries, the BDI, is pushing very hard to the German government to push back against China. Right. Which trade they see as a strategic competitor in they economic do. terms in a mm-hmm. way that Russia is not. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. And I'm actually very, very glad for that, honestly, because there is quite there. I would say Germany is much better on China or mm-hmm. pushing back against Chinese strategic pressure than on mm-hmm. Russia. So at least that, 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 that's what they do quite well, yeah. I would say. Ostpolitik only goes so far to the Ost. <laughs> Very Ostpolitik, right? <laughs> uh, but for uh, us countries in Central Eastern Europe, I think the biggest question for us is, let's say, how long can we keep American troops in Europe to deter Russia? Uh, potentially, not maybe not next, well, not for next year, but in the long run. In yeah, well, we just years. announced we're sending a thousand troops to Poland. And I know, I, I know, the, 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 there are current things happening, let's say, but I understand that the, in Washington, there are, let's say, many people who, uh, for, I would say, objective reasons, really think, well, NATO might be just basically a regional organization for deterring Russia. And that's more or less how it is. But given mm-hmm. what I think will be coming up in next possible decades, uh, US-China confrontation, uh, I would say that People on both sides of the aisle here in D.C. would really expect the Europeans, let's say, to be on the American side on China. I'm not saying that the Europeans should be invading China or whatever. <laughs> I mean, using our militaries to yeah. do anything. Well, it, But Russia is kind of in between. That might make it a little difficult. <laughs> <laughs> There are a lot of bad jokes about it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the fact is that I think generally the message for uh, for us in Europe is really if we want to keep American troops in Europe to deter Russia, we need to be on the American side on China, which doesn't mean that we would be very aggressive on China, but we cannot become a liability on China, mm-hmm. which many of us in Europe, including the Czech Republic, has been quite often. So, so I mean, now there is the Huawei case, whether we will right. allow the, the Chinese tech company to build, build our 5G. networks, 5G networks, yeah. but also other government communications networks across Europe. And that's a big question for many European governments. And many right. of them see it as a very technical issue, it's just our domestic problem, but it's really a strategic issue, mm-hmm. not only from seeing it from Washington, but really seeing how are we going to move on China, because China really wants Europe to be basically neutral mm-hmm. in its Uh, confrontation with the U.S. Which is exactly what Russia wants. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Jakob, that's uh, been great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. Okay. That is all for today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can find a link to Jakob's bio in the show notes. Uh, and you can also find a link there to uh, his organization's 2018 annual ranking of EU states on the responses to Russian interference. Uh, keep your eyes out for the 2019 ranking, which uh, European Values will be releasing soon. 
Um, also, as a reminder, as always, if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, sign up, subscribe, and spread the word, and enjoy. Uh, also, a uh, reminder to send mailbag questions. You can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, we promise we'll do another mailbag segment here soon. Also, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, and finally, of course, big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Until next time.